This 4th of July, as we go about our activities with family and friends, we should all take some time to reflect upon the true significance of the holiday. Yes, it's a celebration of our country's declaration of independence from Great Britain, but it is much more than that. It's a celebration of an idea that was revolutionary then and unfortunately is still considered revolutionary by many today. The Declaration of Independence boldly states, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and institute a new government. This revolutionary declaration is the foundation of American political thought and has inspired millions around the world for the 235 years since Thomas Jefferson wrote it. The common view at the time was that rights were granted by the government to the people. Instead, Jefferson declared there is a higher law, unalienable rights, that every human has by their mere existence. Government only has those powers granted to it by the people to protect these natural rights. Unfortunately today, it seems that many have rejected Jefferson's declaration and have returned to the antiquated idea of government supremacy. They define patriotism as supporting the government. Most disheartening of all are the discussions about the Constitution. Political commentators, major party politicians, and Supreme Court nominees talk about our constitutional rights as if the government were granting us our rights through the Constitution. Nothing could be farther from the truth. In the Constitution, the Founders again made it abundantly clear that all power comes from the people. The Constitution is a document where people have granted the government certain limited powers. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Benjamin Franklin said, They that can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. The author of this thoughtful, powerfully written piece, Mr. Jim Ronstadt, suggests that we take a moment this 4th of July from our celebrations that we might reflect on the Founder's vision for America and how, if I might add, we ever let it get so far astray.
Broadcasting from behind the Second Amendment Iron Curtain in the shadows of the New York City skyline, this is Gun For Hire Radio, the voice of one million New Jersey gun owners, with your hosts, Sandy Berardi and Master Firearms Trainer, Anthony Calandra. Live from the land that freedom forgot, the most listened to Second Amendment broadcast in the nation, all six of us. So uh, I'm in New Jersey, Sandy's in Alabama, and in my spare bedroom in my house in Woodland Park, I have Dan. I abducted Dan Schmutter <laughs> and, uh, uh, for Independence Day because we have, we have so much going on in the state of New Jersey. I've been having a little trouble trying to contact him lately, so I lured him to my house with cigars and bacon. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so um, I got him, and so and, I and, wi- I, and whiskey and whiskey. And whiskey. Well, let's not and, forget uh, the whiskey. So w- without further ado, um, our one of our lead two A councils in New Jersey from Hartman Winnikey in Ridgewood, New Jersey, ANJRPC uh, attorney two A extraordinaire Dan Schmutter. Welcome, Dan. Hello, guys. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Hey, thanks for being here. So, so Dan, on this show, we're, I want I want you to touch on, obviously, Kuhn Siegel. I want you to touch on uh, assault weapon, evil features. I want you to touch on the MAG case, the newest Supreme Court. They granted cert to a case. And anything else that you want to talk about. Uh, for you listeners out there, Dan was stressed this morning. He wouldn't be able to fill an hour. Our listeners would listen to you if you were on the show for 14 hours because – we're dying for information here. Oh, we, we should touch on also the ANGRPC alert, Dan, that uh, the ghost guns and stuff. So you have a lot to cover. Sandy and I are going to kind of freeform here. And uh, so uh, what I do want to talk about is your, your law office is in Ridgewood, right? Yes. So last Saturday I went to Village Green Restaurant in Ridgewood. You've nice been place. there before, yeah. right, Dan? Very nice. It's been a great restaurant. Yeah. So it's a farm-to-table BYOB restaurant, and I made reservations for Tracy and I and uh, two of her friends, another couple, and Kevin Porchter, who's Gun for Hire alumni, donates to all the 2A causes. He's donating to the D.C. project that's going on in, in July as well. He, uh, I reserved the table, and he brought out a bonus appetizer, guys, and he knows I like Taylor ham and cheese sliced thin and well done. <laughs> Sandy, it was Taylor ham and cheese on gluten-free brioche bread cut up in a rectangle with a schmear of ketchup on the plate, like for dipping. Very nouveau, oh, right? Nice. It was phenomenal, and the, the gluten-free brioche is his recipe. He's testing it for the restaurant, oh. so we were a little bit of the guinea pig. So if you haven't been to the Village Green restaurant in Ridgewood, when you go into Dan's office at Hartman Winnicky to have your will done or any other things that Dan's office specializes in, make sure you swing over to Village Green. Tell uh, Kevin... Gun for Hire sent us, uh, sent you. He's on the StandStrong.biz um, site as well. The food was phenomenal. I had shrimp Creole. OMG. That's all I'm going to say. So, without further ado, Dan, start. You have four or five Creole things you got to talk about. See, because we're fat. That's right. Uh, Dan, start from whatever, wherever you want. Let just hit us, and we'll interject whenever possible. Hit it. Well, let, let me let me start with. Well, first of all, let me let me uh, start by. Um, wishing uh, you and everybody and all your listeners a, uh, a very happy and joyous Independence Day and Independence Day weekend. Um, yes. It's really, it's, it's, it's without a doubt one of my favorite holidays. I mm. think the, I think Independence Day, you know, people 
people have a tendency to say, oh, okay, this is this is time for barbecues. And there's nothing wrong with barbecues. But I think it's really worthwhile for people to fully embrace and experience and sort of think about what Independence Day is all about. Mm-hmm. Truth. Because Truth. You know, the, the Independence Day and the American Revolution really ushered in um, a, 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 an unprecedented era of human liberty for the planet. I mean, yep. it is um, what, what the ripple effect, effect of, of the American Revolution and the concepts and principles embodied in the, the, the movement, the event, and the document um, really uh, uh, have, have been, have had an, uh, an extraordinary effect on mankind. Um, throughout the world and throughout the last several hundred years. So um, I, I, it's really a, a joyous, joyous occasion. Um, and it's a, it's a reason why I call it Independence Day rather than the 4th of July. Me too. Um, I don't call the it the 4th of July. The 4th of July misses what the holiday is. It's just exactly. a day. Um, and so it's just, I want to wish everybody just a wonderful, uh, wonderful time. And I, I'm, honestly, it's a great day to go to the range. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it's it's a great day to celebrate liberty. Um, and human freedom is go to the range uh, and, and practice and, and prepare and, and just do all the, good, all the good things that keep us free. So that, 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 I just wanted to open with that because I feel very, very, uh, uh, very connected to that. And it's, it's very important to me. And I hope it's, it shows well. in, your, in your daily actions. It shows, by the way. Thank you. Thank um, you. So, so, so let, let's, talk about the, uh, let's talk about Friday's, uh, Friday's alert from ANGRPC. Um, sure. I'm glad, you know, they say timing is everything. I'm glad that it came out in time for the show because it's something that I've been wanting to talk about and it's it's been, it has not been public until until Friday. So um, uh, everybody, well, everybody, I, I assume your listeners are aware of uh, uh, Evan Knappen's discussion, very extensive discussion, both I know on his podcast and also in writing uh, about the so-called ghost gun law and and how it the way it was drafted and the way it was implemented uh, by the legislature uh, inadvertently banned millions of the ordinary firearms um, held by millions of people uh, throughout New Jersey and elsewhere um, and uh, instantly made criminals of an enormous number of people um, as Evan has explained uh, what it did was instead of targeting what they, you know, the the law was presumably targeting um, what people commonly understand to be call eighty uh, percent uh, receivers, eighty percent lowers, um, uh, unfinished uh, receivers, um, uh, basically chunks of metal that uh, people can finish and ultimately turn into a firearm. Um, the, the New Jersey has. Uh, taken a number of steps to regulate and or prohibit uh, such activities. And in doing so, they passed uh, uh, a law which inadvertently, instead of just targeting what they, and this, they, they call these ghost guns, um, you know, as you know, le- legislatures like to put labels on things. It, 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 they do it for dramatic effect. They do it for emotional effect, you know, assault weapon or you know, ghost gun. These are all these are all uh, words that that um, governments like to use to uh, elicit an emotional response rather than a thoughtful, factual, intelligent response. It's because that's it's how they are able to 
do what they do. The, the, the less people are able to think clearly about a topic, the mm-hmm. easier it is for a legislature to violate people's rights and oppress. Tug at those emotional people. strings. Exactly. So they, they use these phrases like ghost gun. In any event, uh, so I'll, I'll use the I'll use the term ghost gun only because that's how they that's how they do it. So the idea was they were they were uh, ostensibly targeting so-called ghost guns, but what they ended up doing is they ended up banning um, every firearm that does either does not have a serial number or has a serial number but not from a federally licensed manufacturer well that turns out to be an enormous number of ordinary firearms including bb guns and, and air guns because in as you know in new jersey um bb guns and air guns are are defined as firearms which is a whole separate issue which is lunacy to begin with but <laughs> but the point is you know just about every bb gun and air gun was banned muzzle loaders pre-1968 imports um, you know, it was just just lunacy. Uh, you know, Daisy and Crossman and Gamma, they, they don't put serial numbers on their guns typically. I mean, on their because on their, they're toys. Front. Yeah, it, it's so so it's it's. I mean, there's probably a small number of, uh, of BB guns that Ruger made years ago. Maybe those had serial numbers, but it, so so you know, as as is very common of of legislatures, and particularly the New Jersey legislature, they slapped together a bill that was not well not well thought out and included mm-hmm. all kinds of language that did all kinds of crazy things that even the anti-gun legislature likely didn't even intend you know it's bad enough that the legislature seeks to oppress new jerseyans by violating their fundamental rights um on the substance of what they're trying to do but then when they slap together these these statutes that that don't make any sense and that do all kinds of crazy stuff, it's even worse. You know, one of the things that I, I'm sure your listeners and listeners are aware of, because I know we've talked about this, you know, going going back to the you know chapter 131, the uh, the anti-Bruin carry law that we're litigating uh, very extensively, as your as your uh, listeners are aware. You know, even that bill, before it was passed, NGRPC and NRA did a lot of work um, behind the scenes talking with legislators about cleaning up those same kinds of drafting errors that resulted that would have resulted in all kinds of crazy restrictions you may remember one of one of the, the, the most public ones was the use of the word weapon in the sensitive place portion of the bill mm-hmm. uh, ha- had that been enacted using that language you know a plumber would not have been able to bring a wrench into the courthouse to repair the bathroom you know, uh, to the to repair the toilet. I mean, all kinds of ordinary tools are 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 def- would be defined as weapons under New Jersey law because New Jersey definition of weapon is incredibly broad. And so we were able to persuade um, the, the the legislature to 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 change that language. And there was a whole bunch of that stuff that you know that um, NGRPC worked very hard to kind of clean up because it's one thing to fight with the state of New Jersey on the merits. Of a prohibition, it's another thing to have to fight with them over ridiculous drafting errors. You know, um, we knew, uh, and of course, as we see, it's it, it's come to fruition that we would have a serious fight on our hands on the on the on the merits of the carry law. Um, but to fight over ridiculous drafting errors is, is a whole other thing. So, so there's a great deal of of behind the scenes conversations about 
how a, a, a law is worded, you know, you have the, the, the direct substance of what they're trying to do to us. There's that, and we're obviously we're all familiar with that. Then there's the language that do, implements things in a way that kind of doesn't really make sense in terms of even what they're trying to do. And then there's the, the, the category of crazy stuff, the just stupid things that, that whoever put together the language just wasn't even thinking about. Idiots. So, <clears throat> Go ahead. Yeah. I, had, so, I had something in my throat. So some, sometimes you can clean that stuff up. And as I said, NJRPC and NRA were actually quite successful in cleaning up a lot of that stuff in the, in the carry law. Sometimes you just can't. Sometimes they just you know ran things through and you have to live with some of the stupidity that comes out of the language of, of the statute. And so, so this law, the so-called ghost gun uh, law uh, is an example of the latter where they, they just rammed through a terribly drafted law that, as Evan has explained extensively, um, uh, had this enormous effect on so many people. You know, and people are like, well, wait a minute. How, so you're, ta- you're saying my, my, my Mosin the Gant rifle from 1942 is suddenly illegal? My muzzle loader is suddenly illegal? My, my Daisy uh, 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 BB gun is suddenly illegal? And the answer was yes. <laughs> it was. Yep. They were. Um, and so, you know, the 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 immediate thought was, you know, what we got to bring a lawsuit. We've got to stop. This is urgent because millions of people are suddenly criminals, you know. And so the urgency was, you know, so we were, you know, we were we were putting together uh, a lawsuit. We were going to we were considering, you know, obtaining a TRO, uh, seeking a TRO and a preliminary injunction, things like that. And your listeners uh, who have been following the Siegel case. Have a have a now have a good understanding of of TROs and preliminary injunctions and how those work and and what they're for and and, and then uh, uh, I have to say Scott Scott um, Scott decided you know uh, Scott Bach uh, executive director of ANGRPC decided you know before we run into court let's have a conversation with the attorney general's office um, which was a great idea because. And, and I, I, I've, I've discussed this on your show quite a bit um, and elsewhere. Um, so much of what ANGRPC does is not in court. You know, we've talked about this issue. People, a lot of people think to them, you know, say uh, on social media and elsewhere, why aren't we suing about X? Why aren't we suing about Y? Why aren't we suing about G, uh, Z? Um, and one of the reasons for that, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's their, their tactical and strategic reasons. Um, there's issues of triage and, and, and priority. But the other reason, and this is a huge reason, is that not everything requires a lawsuit. You know, in fact, so much of what ANGRPC and NRA do isn't in court. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of an iceberg thing. You see the lawsuits because they're super public, but below the surface of the water, there's a ton of stuff happening that you don't see because it's not public. Um, and so the, the, the you know the Scott's idea of not running into court and trying to have a conversation with the Attorney General's office was a great idea, and it turns out to have been a, a really great idea because it was it was highly successful. So um, so um, uh, I was tasked with reaching out to uh, to my contacts at the Attorney General's office at a high level um, to raise this issue with them, and they were very very receptive to the conversation. And so we've been in conversations now for quite a few weeks. Um, we raised the issue with them. We explained our our view of what happened when the legislature did this. Um, and in, in addition to sort of identifying the problem, we also identified a proposed solution. Um, I, I worked very closely with uh, Evan Knappen and Scott uh, on sort of thinking through 
how do you fix this? What, what's the mechanism to fix this? Um, because, you know, you can go to the legislature, but good luck, right? The legislature, number one, yeah. getting cooperation in the legislature is like, you know, you're pulling teeth. And number two, it takes forever. Um, and this was an urgent, urgent problem uh, because so many so many people had been instantly turned into criminals. And so... Um, so we so we thought through you, you know Evan 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 thinks about this stuff like in his sleep. I mean this his his he sleeps? global his global understanding of New Jersey gun law and how all the pieces fit together is really unmatched. And so we we kind of put our we all put our heads together, um, and we came up with a proposal that we we believed would solve the problem. And, and what's what's interesting about the problem. Is that it was actually it actually had two different components because it did the legislation in the way it was worded actually did two bad things the first thing it did was obviously it disregarded the idea that many 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 firearms don't require under federal under federal law don't require serial numbers and and either don't now or didn't then when they were when they were uh, 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 sold or, or or manufactured and so it ignored the entire universe of firearms that do not or did not require a serial number at all. That was piece number one, and that swept in huge, three huge categories of uh, of, of uh, quote unquote firearms. Obviously, there's the BB guns and, and air guns. That 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 whole category. There's the antique firearms slash muzzle loaders. There's that category, and then there's anything pre 1968 that didn't require a serial number because under federal law, serial numbers weren't required prior to 1968. So, mm -hmm. so those three categories are enormous, but then there's a second problem. The second problem was that the new uh, federal law, when in federal law, the federal law, uh, the federal uh, serial number requirement, there are two different ways you can have a valid serial number. You can have a valid serial number that is created by a federally licensed manufacturer, right? Smith and Wesson, as a federal manufacturer's license, and, and Smith and Wesson uh, creates, you know, a, a, a manufacturers a firearm. They, they put a serial number on it, and good. So you've got your your com compliant with federal law. You have your federally licensed manufacturer that's produced a firearm with a serial number. Wonderful. But you also, under federal law, can have a valid serial number through a federally licensed importer. You can have an imp imported firearm that has a proper serial number, and there. So those are two different ways you can comply with federal law. The problem is the New Jersey law doesn't talk about importers; it only talks about manufacturers, federally licensed manufacturers. So if you have a validly lawfully imported firearm that was manufactured in Europe or wherever, it doesn't count under the New Jersey law. It's illegal, of right? Course. So everybody knows. That Sig has a factory in New Hampshire, and they they're you know they have a, a, a U.S. affiliate, Sig Sauer Inc. that presumably has a federal manufacturer's license, but they didn't always have that. You know they didn't even have a U.S. affiliate before 1985. So if you have if you have an imported Sig that wasn't manufactured in New Hampshire, it's probably illegal under the under the statute because the, the New Jersey law didn't recognize. The fact that you can have a valid federal, a federally valid uh, serial number that, came, that that was came through a, a licensed importer. So that was the other big chunk, was imported firearms didn't count. So the, the number of, of of firearms that became illegal overnight was was just enormous. So we had to deal with both of these concepts, and so we, as I said, you know, Evan and Scott and I, we kind of we put together. Uh, thought through you know, each step, we put together um, a proposal 
that we thought would would solve this problem. And you know, as as your, your listeners should understand, many of them probably do already. But the attorney general, the attorney general oversees and directs the activities of all law enforcement in the state of New Jersey. And so, police and prosecutors and law enforcement agencies report essentially to the mm-hmm. to the um, attorney general's office. And so, the attorney general has various uh, mechanisms to to uh, direct the activities of law enforcement throughout the state. And one of the ways is through what's called a guideline. Um, and and just just by way of example for your listeners. The your your they they people folks may be familiar with how the assault firearm statute works. There are two components to the assault firearm statute. There's the, the the statute passed by the legislature, and the statute passed by the legislature has a list of banned firearms, and then it has a catch-all category referred to as you know anything substantially identical to an enumerated firearm. Well, the problem is substantially identical didn't, there was no definition for what that means. How do you tell if something is substantially identical to something on the list? Well, that was challenged in federal court and was found to be unconstitutionally vague. And so what the attorney general did was they came out with a guideline that created a definition for substantially identical, and that's where the feature test came from. As your listeners probably are familiar with, New Jersey has a feature test to determine whether something is an, uh, a banned assault firearm. The evil that, features. The evil features. And that feature test was imported into the law through an attorney general guideline. The legislature never didn't create that. That that came in through an attorney general guideline, and it has the force of law, um, uh, and it, 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 is, it is binding on law enforcement. So... So we requested that the attorney general do some do the same thing here, um, and that's essentially what they, that, not essentially that is what they did. They created a guideline, um, similarly binding on law enforcement, as to how to interpret and enforce those the, the, that the, those aspects of the quote unquote ghost gun law that would otherwise impact all of these ordinary commonly possessed firearms, and so. Um, the, the the what the what the guideline does, I mean, it's posted on the NGRPC website. Uh, presumably, will soon be posted on the Attorney General's website. I don't think it's up there yet. Um, um, but they, there is a there is a section. If you go to the Attorney General's website webpage, there is a uh, a section with all the guidelines. Um, and if you go there, you can see a whole list of guidelines with links, you know, uh, to to the actual. Requirement. So eventually, this will get up there, I assume. But for now, we ANJRPC has it on the ANJRPC website, www.anjrpc.org, so you can read it. In fact, I think you can get there through the alert that went out. Um, it's, there's a link in the alert that'll take you to the actual document. And so what it basically does is it does two things. It um, it directs law enforcement to uh, to apply the law. To, or, to, or rather to not apply the law to anything that did not require a serial number under federal law. So that basically, I mean, I'm, 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 uh, I'm obviously shortcutting it a little bit. There's, there's more detail to it, but I'm, I'm giving the sort of overall gist of the concept. And so what that does, it takes care of those first three big categories, right? So anything that didn't require or doesn't require uh, a serial number under federal law is taken care of through that concept. And then... The, the the import the importation problem 
uh, is taken care of because the guideline instructs law enforcement to tr to apply the phrase federally licensed manufacturer to include federally licensed importers. So now federally, the concept of importation has been brought into the statute through the term federally licensed manufacturer. So that takes care of the whole thing. Good. And uh, and so it, it kind of it's very it very broadly solves both of the two problems that uh, that the statute created. So so we're you know we're this is a, again a great example of you don't necessarily have to run into court. Um, and, I appreciate uh, you reaching across and getting that done rather than spending time, money, resources, you know, over that uh, in court. This is this is a big big thing for us. You know, yeah. a lot yeah. of people and, don't and, realize and, it. But it's a big thing. Yeah, and it's a good example of there's stuff happening that you don't necessarily know about, right? We're, we're, you know, again, I'll go back to the original concept. It's like, well, why aren't they doing this? Why aren't oh, they doing that? And it's it's so often the case that uh, we are doing stuff. You just you can't see it because it's non-public, or at least it's not public yet. You know, and that's this is a really good example of that. So I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm 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 gratified that we were able to do this. Um, you know, I think the the, the Scott's it, 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 Scott's sort of instinct to not run in court, I think, was was exactly the right uh, call here. Um, and of course, you know, Evan, you know, the way Evan thinks about this stuff, the, his analytical uh, precision and crispness is invaluable in these kinds of situations. And so, you know, I'm just I'm just glad we were able to do this. Kick ass, Dan. Uh, can you give us some updates on the uh, on your Siegel case? Because you sure. Know, the judge, uh, our judge, kind of stepped out. Chief Judge Bump, she kind of stepped out. Can you explain to people what's going on and what the timeline is? Obviously, can't tell a strategy, but just tell us. Give some people some hope because everybody got the carry, and now they're beat down that they can't carry anywhere or that they were allowed to. Just you know, just give them a little primer, please. Right. And so, so let me let me just let me in, Dan, for yeah. the new people just coming in, uh, which we get new yeah. listeners every week, just. Explain what we're talking about when we talk about the Siegel case. Right. So I'll give you the right. So so for people not familiar with the Siegel case, so uh, Siegel versus Platkin is NGRPC's um, lawsuit seeking to strike down the uh, the anti Bruin anti carry law that was passed in December of 2022 uh, by New Jersey, which basically took um, New Jersey's uh, carry permit and made it useless. Um, the number of restrictions in that law uh, really, really made it virtually impossible to carry anywhere because it did, it did a number of things. That the and I'm not going to go through the whole law, obviously, uh, but but two critical things uh, that it did was it created a, a whole bunch of so-called sensitive places that it prohibited carry, and the list is enormous. But it also did. Another uh, a thing, which is it created these vast carve-outs, swaths of things you can't do. So it, it prohibited carry in a vehicle, which, as your listeners know, make it virtually impossible to carry because if you have to, if you can't drive anywhere carrying, so it, obviously you're, you're vulnerable in your vehicle, but also the logistics of getting around basically mean it's, it's impossible to carry. But also they, were, they, they did this um, they did this thing where they created a presumption of illegality on private property. You could mm -hmm. not carry without an express without express permission by the private property owner to get permission to carry. So that too made it virtually impossible 
to to carry anywhere because even if it's the language is property owner well who how do you, if you're walking into a restaurant how do you know who owns the property that restaurant most likely doesn't own the building mm-hmm. right they have a landlord so who's the landlord how are you going to get you couldn't even walk in and ask the restaurant owner can i carry here if they don't own the building it's the property owner that has to get permission so it was it was calculated by the state to to basically be a substitute for the now unlawful justifiable need requirement they stopped people from carrying by preventing people from getting permits after the Bruin decision by the Supreme Court they could no longer do that so they came up with another way of making it impossible for people to carry and so as you were as many of your listeners know but for new folks um, we we sued immediately as soon as you know we were we were watching the press conference when the governor was signing the the, uh, the law we had our lawsuit ready to go we sued immediately um, uh, the, the other groups sued as well there's a case called Coons versus uh, Platkin which uh, as your listeners know the cases are now consolidated they've been consolidated for some considerable time we've been litigating the cases together um, in front of uh, a judge uh, Renee Bum and we got really really great relief uh emergency relief from the judge we got both temporary restraining orders back in january we got uh, a a really great preliminary injunction um from the judge which in which she halted uh or enjoined or uh, you know blocked the really the most the worst aspects of the law um and so we, we're very we were very pleased that the judge uh really saw how so much of this law was unconstitutional or was likely unconstitutional to use the parlance of the legal standard um she didn't draw any final conclusions but she drew conclusions that that these were likely unconstitutionally we were likely to succeed at trial and that's why she gave us both temporary restraining orders back in january and then ultimately a preliminary injunction which is designed to last for the whole duration of the case until we go to trial and are able to uh, uh seek a final judgment now that's so that's that's what happened there now of course we go to the appeal hmm. so after the preliminary as soon as the preliminary injunction was entered the state and we knew that they were going to do this the state appealed to the intermediate appellate court that governs the federal courts in New Jersey, and that is the Court of Appeal, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Just to explain to your listeners, who some of whom may be familiar with this, but many who may not be, the federal court system is geographically broken down. You have your trial courts, your, your lowest courts, which are called district courts, and they're each each state has at least one district court, but some states have multiple district courts. And then you have an intermediate appellate court, and so your appeals go to those intermediate courts, and they're called the United States Courts of Appeals, not surprisingly. And each, uh, uh, it's broken down into geographic regions called circuits. And so the New Jersey federal court uh, is goes up to the third circuit. The third circuit covers New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and um, the Virgin Islands, interestingly. Um, New York sits in the second circuit so the Mm. cases coming out of the new york federal courts Mm. go up to the court of appeals for the second circuit that's new york connecticut vermont and puerto rico uh and so uh uh, and so what happens is each region of the country appeals to different courts in different quote-unquote circuits okay so the state immediately uh, appealed the decision of judge bum 
to the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, and they did a couple of things. They did, they asked for an expedited uh, pr uh, procedure, which we agreed with because we want this to be dealt with quickly, uh, mm -hmm. which the court granted. And then they asked for something called a stay pending appeal. And what that means is they want, they asked the court to set aside the judge's ruling during the appeal, basically saying, this is going to take some time. We're not going to have, you know, there has to be briefs filed. There has to be oral argument. The court has to then make a decision, and that takes time. And so what the state said is, while we're doing all that stuff, you should set aside the judge's ruling. Um, and the, 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 to, to obtain a stay pending appeal, the applicant actually has to satisfy a very similar standard, not identical, but it's very close, it's a similar standard to a plaintiff who wants to obtain a preliminary injunction. Um, they have to show that there's a likelihood that they're going to win on the appeal. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, the court has to decide, is that true or not? Now, um, in this particular case, it, uh, they ended up uh, they ended up getting a stay pending appeal. But so there's so a couple of interesting things about the stay pending appeal. Obviously, we're not happy about it, um, but it was a 2-1 decision. So these kinds of things are decided typically um, in the Court of Appeals. Uh, things are decided by a three-judge panel. This decision was 2-1. There was a dissenting judge, Judge Porter, who would not have granted the stay. Um, but the other interesting thing about the stay pending appeal is that that the state was not granted as to everything that the judge ruled. Well, first of all, they didn't they didn't apply for everything. So, for example, we obtained a preliminary injunction um, as to the insurance requirement, which would have gone into effect, which was supposed to go into effect July first, but that was enjoined. So, the insurance requirement is not applicable currently. But the state did not request a stay pending appeal as to the insurance requirement. They only requested a stay pending appeal as to the sensitive place provisions. So that's concept number one. But concept number two is that they didn't get everything. Um, most notably, the panel, even though the panel granted a stay on Judge Bum's injunction as to a whole bunch of the sensitive place provisions that we prevailed on, um, the panel did not stay the injunction as to the vehicle prohibition. So the vehicle, so the vehicle prohibition is still, uh, is still uh, adjoined by the court. There's still an injunction preventing the state from enforcing the vehicle prohibition, and the judge's ruling on private property is still in place. The the uh, the uh, Third Circuit panel did not issue a stay on Judge Bum's ruling vis-a-vis -vis private property. So Judge Bum's ruling on private property and Judge Bum's ruling on vehicles is still in effect. Perfect. which is very important um you know so i i find that interesting um because if i recall correctly so so let me remind your listeners there's very similar litigation going on in new york and the court of appeals for the second circuit so uh, your listeners may remember new york went first in losing their minds over bruin uh, bruin was decided uh june 23rd 2022 and the New York legislature immediately called, they, they called a, they called a uh, uh, an emergency session and they immediately passed a lunatic anti-Bruin law like two weeks later. 
uh, or even a week later, maybe two weeks later, like first week of July, I think it was. And lots of lawsuits just went flying. Um, uh, everybody, I think there's five lawsuits at this point. Um, uh, but uh, the, the lawsuits started immediately. They sought temporary restraining orders and they obtained them. They sought and obtained preliminary injunctions. And then their case was appealed to the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. That happened some considerable time ago. They were way ahead of us because our law didn't come into effect until December. Um, so they were quite a few months ahead of us. Um, but what's interesting about the New York cases, the Second Circuit, is if I recall correctly, they, the state of New York also got a state pending appeal, but I believe that the Second Circuit issued a complete state pending appeal on everything. Yep, they Whereas did. here, the Third Circuit did not uh, issue a state pending appeal on everything. I thought I think that's interesting. Um, you know, look, not, none of this, none of this tells us what's going to happen down the road, right? It's all in play. Um, there is also litigation in Maryland. Maryland did the same thing, but later. I believe Hawaii has now done the same thing as well. I think there's a litigation in Hawaii as well. So this is all very interesting. And, and for, for those of your listeners that like to follow the mechanics and dynamics of all this stuff nationally, so the first set of lawsuits um, is in the Second Circuit, Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. The second set of lawsuits is ours, our set in the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Maryland is behind us. That's the, They sit in the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, so a different appellate court. And Hawaii sits in the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. So there are at least four different federal jurisdictions in play here. Okay. Um, and the question on everybody's mind, I'm sure, because it's on my mind, is does this at some point get to the Supreme Court? Um, and... The more lawsuits, the more different courts of appeals that are dealing with this, the more likelihood that this gets to the Supreme Court. Um, now, I know some folks are thinking, oh, why can't we take this to the Supreme Court immediately? Why can't we do this? There, yeah, are, there are procedures and timelines that, that have to be followed. Um, and um, as everybody knows, the Supreme Court has a discretionary docket, meaning they get to pick and choose which cases they hear and which cases they don't hear. Um, but what is very interesting is that this stuff is happening in multiple places. It's happening in various sequences. And, you know, it, 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 there's a good chance that it is barreling towards the Supreme Court at some point. The question is when. And we, we have no way of knowing, you know. Uh, but that, that, that's, sort of the, that's sort of the broad picture. Now, let me give some timeline stuff for our case. Please. Um, for your listeners. So we are on track to be to orally argue the case on October 25th. That's when oral argument has been set by the court. Now, I know some people are thinking, oh my God, uh, October 25th, this is fast. I mean, this is, we have an extradited briefing schedule. Uh, we have, you know, so, so there, th this is not, nor normally this would go on and on and on and on and on in an ordinary appeal. So this is an expedited appeal. Uh, I, people, for people who are not used to how long this stuff takes, don't realize that it normally would take a lot longer. So, uh, you know, would we rather be in court, you know, arguing this in August? Sure. <laughs> I, I'd much rather have this uh, argued in August or even September. But, you know, the parties have to write briefs. The court has to read the briefs. So you can speed it up, but there are limits to how quickly they can speed Correct. up. So, you know, um, so that, that's the that's the essence of, 
Uh, oh, oh, and just be aware, we are also cross-appealing. We are also appealing aspects of the ruling, of Judge Bum's ruling, where where Judge Bum disagreed with us and did not give us relief. So there are a number of things that she did. Even though her ruling for us was fantastic in most respects, there are a few things where we think she made a mistake and where we think she should have ruled in our favor. And so we are cross-appealing as well and asking the Third Circuit, Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, to... Uh, to reverse those mistakes. So now, what, what did Judge Bum do? She released a, a two-page thing, and you kind of explained to me on the phone. But people are confused. What did she do? She stepped away while the Third Circuit takes over. Dan, everybody's kind of confused with that. Right. So what she did was she issued an order, um, administratively terminating the cases in her court. Administrative termination. Uh, is uh, it's actually an interesting approach. It's actually I don't know if it's unique to the District of New Jersey, but I know that people outside of New Jersey have never uh, many people have never heard of it. So it might be unique to the District of New Jersey. What it basically is is very simple. It's a way of stopping the proceedings in the district court while something else is happening. Uh, and so and it's it's it doesn't it's completely temporary, and it's completely can be undone easily. Um, what you basically do, and this is this is the way. I mean, administrative termination orders sometimes differ a little bit in the wording, but what she's basically done is she's taken it off the active calendar, so it is not currently an active case in the district court, and you can reinstate it. And basically, what the order says is, when the when you're when you're done at the Third Circuit, anybody can reinstate the case with a letter, simple letter. Okay. You don't have to file a motion. You don't have to justify it. Literally, we send a letter saying, "Dear Judge Bum." The Third Circuit has ruled. Please reinstate the case, and that's that's all it takes. So, so it is. It's simply we're gonna not we're gonna we're not doing anything here in this court while we wait for the Third Circuit. You guys go to the Third Circuit, do what you have to do. When you're done, come back and we'll finish what we have to do here. If, if there's anything we have to do here, we'll finish. That, that's all it is. So it's a very very simple thing. It's very common. Uh, for example, while Bruin was pending at the Supreme Court, several of the cases, several of our cases. In uh, in the District of New Jersey, were administratively terminated for exactly the same, essentially the same reasons. The court, the district court, said, "Look, there's no reason for this to be sitting on the calendar while we're waiting for the Supreme Court. We're going to administratively terminate, and then, when uh, subject to Bruin, and when Bruin, when the court rules on Bruin, you can send us a letter and say we want the case back on the calendar." Um, that happened in uh, Mazare, which was our. Um, which was our carry case, our follow-on carry case to um, Rogers. Uh, your, your listeners uh, may remember the Rogers versus Graywall case that we brought. Uh, oh, I do. Pri- prior to uh, prior to Bruin, same basically the same case as Bruin, just earlier, um, in New Jersey instead of New York. Um, after the Supreme Court denied cert, certiorari, uh, meaning they declined to hear. Our petition in Rogers. We then brought Mazare as a follow-on to make sure that there was always something in the pipeline challenging New Jersey's justifiable need requirement. So Mazare, because the Supreme Court agreed to hear the Bruin case, Mazare, which was basically, like I said, the same basic case, was put on, was administratively terminated, taken off the active calendar while the court was deciding Bruin. After Bruin was decided, we asked the court to reinstate Mazare, and then in Mazare we ended up with a council fee award so we ended up entering judgment the court by agreement with the with the state entering judgment in our favor um you know people uh, people think a lot of people think that justifiable need was officially eliminated 
um, on, with the December 22nd legislation, but in fact, justifiable need was officially eliminated uh, by our judgment in the Masre case. Uh, uh, several months earlier, we had gotten a judgment from the federal court in Masre um, uh, declaring justifiable need unconstitutional and uh, getting a permanent injunction against justifiable need. Um, that's yep. actually how it got officially eliminated. Um, but in any event, and then we got and we got an award of counsel fees uh, against the defendants. Uh, and so, so that that Masare was that's a similar technique of administratively terminating it. Um, and so it's a, it's a it's a very straightforward, simple procedure instead of issuing just a stay. If you issue a stay, it sits on the calendar, and it's it's like an unresolved case. If you administratively gotcha. terminate it, it's like putting it on the shelf, you know, and then you can take it off the shelf when you need to. Uh, so that's that's what that is. So nothing to nothing to be concerned about. Doesn't affect the merits of anything. It's, it's so, literally procedural. You know. So uh, Sandy, should we do housekeeping now? Yeah. Why don't we uh, pay the bills? Gotcha. We'll give Dan a break. Tell me when. Go ahead. Oh, my God. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, uh, July 15th, Sunday, July 15th, I'll be down at Aberdeen Guns and Ammo on uh, Route 34 in Aberdeen, New Jersey with John and Vin and the guys. I'll be there from noon till about three book signing. Then I got to take my mom to dinner uh, after that. But you might want to stop down and it's going to be his one year anniversary party. So, again, continue to support those who support you. Listen, uh if you live in New York, you need to be a member of N-Y-T-A-C-D-E-F-E-N-S-E, NewYorkTacDefense.com. Mention Gun For Hire or Gun For Hire Radio and get 10% off your monthly membership. If you live in the other 49 states, U.S. Law Shield, U.S. Law Shield, use Gun For Hire, one word, for your discount code as well. Uh, also, John Petrolino's book, Decoding Firearms, will be at the uh, Aberdeen Guns uh, as well. He has signed copies down there. StandStrong.biz, support those who support you. Hartman Winnicky is one of the earliest uh, uh, people that are, have been on the StandStrong.biz. So always search StandStrong.biz before you pick any product or service, please. Um, my doctor, obviously, Optimal Health Wellness NJ, Optimal Health Wellness NJ, Dr. Joe Sambatero, for a few hundred bucks a month, concierge medicine, maximum 250 patients, no more waiting in a stinky doctor's office. Lake Island Rifle and Pistol Club in Carteret, New Jersey, is looking for junior rifle members from 18, uh, 12 to 18 years old. L-A-K-E-I-S dot org. If you're down in the Scotch Plains area, please check out zenfloatcenter.com and ask for Sharon Decker. She is the best, by the way. The North Jersey Chapter Friends of the NRA fundraiser is October 5th. It's rapidly approaching. Friendsofnra.org. Click on events and buy your tickets. I got an email from Teresa Einacker. Hi, Anthony. How are you? Thank you for always mentioning our fundraisers. We appreciate it. Our fundraiser is quickly approaching, and I was hoping you could mention it on your show that the deadline to buy tickets is July 10th. It is a sit-down dinner, so we have to put in the headcounts. Please, can people go to the CNJFO website to buy tickets for the D.C. Project fundraiser Saturday, July 29th at the mansion on Main Street? Guest speakers, Bill Spadia, Jay Factor, and Assemblyman Brian Bergen, at the least, will be there. You know, Assemblyman Auth came in the other day, and I gave him a shout-out. I'm like, here's another 2 way fighter, Assemblyman Bob Auth. Everybody in the place started applauding. I love gun people sometimes <laughs> when I don't want to kill them. I love them. Uh, real quick, 
Uh, Phoebe is now behind the eight ball. Phoebe has to send an email out to Joe Laporto, Brad Hendricks, Gary Mastrangelo, Trevor Ferrigno, Justin Marchetta, Rashonda Crosby, and a few other people who stepped up and volunteered. Dan, if you haven't been listening, we're going to be having a uh, a civics uh, seminar here to teach people how to go to their town at a meeting, board of ed meeting or a regular council meeting, and how to discuss like their rights being infringed on, permits later, whatever. We have past politicians, past, we have lawyers that represent towns, we have council members. Rashonda was a, a council woman in her town for many, many years, and she used to teach a class like this, and all these people are stepping up, so you're going to be able to use your three to five minute a lot of time and go up there and get the most bang for your buck. I can't ask for better than that. A shout out to Mary Jansky. She dropped off for me today three different types of this bread, Sandy. Hero bread, hot dog rolls, hamburger rolls, and this multigrain bread. It basically is really low-cal, low-carb. I had a slice today. I need peanut butter, stat. It is delicious. <laughs> Gun people, again, truly are the best people. Also, Last week, I talked about Dorian. Well, I got an email from his dad, okay? Hey, Aunt, just wanted to say thank you. This is Dominic, Dorian's dad. The kid had his ears perked from the start of the show saying, do you think he's really going to say my name? Well, this kid was ear-to-ear, -ear, uh, <clears throat> man, after hearing one of the best shout-outs I've ever heard. He's extremely excited telling everyone he's famous <laughs> and the story about how he got to meet you. I'm telling you, when we left your range that day, he said as if he was he like he he was in shock, like he shook the Pope's hand. I wear red sneakers when I work out, Dorian, just like the Pope, by the way. <laughs> <clears throat> He's counting the days till his birthday, where he will be no doubt coming up to shoot that day. Uh, he has his own Rossi single shot twenty two, but maybe he will be getting an upgrade for his birthday. We shall see. Dorian, you better do good in school and listen to your parents. Okay, thanks again for the shout out. What are you Seriously, saying? made his. <laughs> Yeah, seriously made his day, month, and year. And thanks again for all you do for the 2A community. Dominic Terry, thank, Dominic, thank you. You have a beautiful family, your three kids. Dorian makes me proud and gives me hope for the future. Absolutely. So, so Dan from Hartman Winnicky, real quick. Dan, my little birdie uh, from the New Jersey State Police, the new training requirement that everybody's waiting for was to have taken effect uh, Saturday, July 1st. Uh, Per the new law, the state police is still working on it. It's going to probably come out the second or third week of July. Everybody listening, don't stress. Continue to qualify. Continue to apply because everybody will have uh, a minimum of six months to get their stuff in order. So it's not like you're going to lose your carry permit when the new training requirement comes out. So, Dan, what I have left for you, because Dan was worried about filling an hour on the show, by the way, listeners, all right? He's <laughs> filibustering here because we need to get him on. Listen, a lot of people like Dan, people come to me and say, I emailed Strike Force and I volunteered to be a plaintiff. I'm like, Dan has it. He will get back to you. He's busy right now filing briefs and stuff with everything that's going on. Am, am I correct in saying that, Dan? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he will get back to you. So, Dan, I want to cover our MAG case. I want to go over our assault weapons case. And the Supreme Court granted cert last week to its Second Amendment case to the shock of everyone out there. If you could discuss those three things and anything else that you have on your mind, I would deeply appreciate it. Sure. But, but first, let me, uh, let me express my relief and gratitude that uh, when you said Durian, you were talking about um, a, a young man who uh, 
presumably will uh, will, will be a, a fine, responsible gun owner in New Jersey, as opposed to the horrifically smelly Southeast Asian fruit. Um, oh, ew, that's a durian, D-U-R-I-A-N. Ugh, yeah. It smells like a hamper. It, it smells like a combination of feet and, Ugh, like, and, and other horrible. Yeah, right. um, horrible. So, yes, I'm, I was very gratified to, 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 to hear that it was. You were, you, were, you were talking about something very encouraging and, and uplifting and, and, and very, very positive. So that's that's good. cool. Um, so U.S. versus Rahimi. Um, yeah. Now, now I will tell you. Uh, the cert grant, uh, I say cert grant, like in jargon. So the Supreme Court, um, as I th- mentioned earlier, uh, and as we've talked about a lot, the Supreme Court has a discretionary calendar. They can, they only hear cases they want to hear. They don't have to hear anything that they don't want to hear. And they hear very few cases because they have many, many, many applications presented to them. And there's, you know, <coughs> they, can't hear, they can't hear even a fraction of them. So um, they, uh, what you what you do, if you want the Supreme Court to hear your case, you file... Uh, what's called a petition for certiorari, cert for short. Um, and when they grant a petition, they can grant your cert petition. People say, oh, they granted cert. Uh, most of the time they deny cert. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, you said to the, to the surprise or shock of, of, of everybody, actually, it wasn't so surprising um, because uh, it is actually uh, not that unusual for the Supreme Court to hear uh, to grant cert in a case where a federal statute is declared unconstitutional hmm. and the federal government files a cert petition. Um, there's actually a fairly good probability that the Supreme Court will heal those case, hear those cases. They don't hear all of them, of course, but, but that's, that's a factor. Those two factors actually substantially increase the likelihood that the Supreme Court's going to hear it. Federal, federal statute... Uh, declared unconstitutional or federal law it doesn't have to be a statute but federal law declared unconstitutional and the federal government wants the court to review it um, they're much more likely to hear that kind of case and that's gotcha. what this is that's what this case is uh, so it's not actually such a shock that the that the court took this case um this is an interesting very interesting post brewing case um it is a challenge to um uh, wait, hold on a second. I'm sorry. I just have to. Uh, it is a challenge to f- the, the federal statute that prohibits firearms possession by a person subject to a domestic violence restraining order. Um, and that's, uh, that's 18 U.S.C. 922 G8. Um, and what's, what's interesting about it is the way the court, uh, the lower court, uh, analyzed Bruin and did the Bruin analysis, uh, the, 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 the historical analysis required under the Bruin case. And what the court basically said was, because there's it's, it's actually two different issues in that case, um, which are fairly important. One of the positions that governments have taken, whether it's federal government or whether it's state governments like New Jersey, um, have taken in some of these post-Bruin cases, is that the first thing you have to figure out under Bruin is whether the plaintiff or the, the, the individual who's claiming the right, the Second Amendment right is even a person protected by the Second Amendment. And what some of these uh, states and the federal government have been saying is that 
this, this, they, they've been advancing this sort of unvirtuous citizen concept. What they do is they hang their hat on sort of this language in Heller and Bruin, which talk about law-abiding individuals. And they say, if you're not law-abiding individuals, you don't even have Second Amendment rights. You first have to show that you're a law-abiding individual. Because if you're not a law-abiding individual, we don't even talk about the Second Amendment because it only applies hmm. to, you know, this sort of virtuous citizen concept. And what that argument does is it does a complete end run around Bruin. Because if they can exclude you entirely from the Second Amendment, they don't have to do any of the historical analysis that's required under Bruin. Hmm. Remember what Bruin requires. It re if this, Once the Second Amendment is triggered, okay, once you fall within the Second Amendment, then the state, the government has to show... Um, uh, that the regu the challenged regulation is consistent with the historical tradition of firearms regulation. That's a very heavy burden. And in many, many instances, the, the government's not going to be able to show that. Um, and so they try to they, they carve out that step in Bruin by, by saying, oh, you're, you don't even have Second Amendment rights. You're not a, a law-abiding individual. And so... What the court in and the, 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 this 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 case Rahimi comes out of the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and what the court said is no, you, you you this this virtuous citizen thing is not how it works, because for for all the reasons that that we just mentioned, is that the the Second Amendment applies to the people, okay, the people broadly means the people. In other words, you don't you don't get to first parse are you the people because you're not quote-unquote law-abiding. Because what does it mean to be law-abiding? What does it mean to be a virtuous person? Well, there are many, many, many ways the state could allege you're not law-abiding. Maybe you've had speeding tickets. Maybe, I mean, everybody, you know, so many people can quote-unquote quote be considered not law-abiding because they got a speeding ticket, because, I don't know, they're, they, they, they filed their taxes late, um, they, whatever. I mean, there's a million different ways that you can be deemed not law-abiding. So if it's that easy to exclude you from your Second Amendment rights, it gives the state a very powerful tool to avoid sure. the historical analysis required by the Supreme Court and required by the Second Amendment in Bruin. So the first thing the Fifth Circuit says is, that's not how it works. Okay? Being, the, 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 the phrase, the, the term people is very broad and so includes basically the, you know, the, the people. Um, so that was, that's a very important concept Cool. Um, and then the second thing they did was when they did a historical analysis, they said, you've got to identify an appropriate historical tradition, a law or laws um, that are consistent with this prohibition on individuals that are subject to uh, uh, um, domestic violence training orders. And what the court said is very interesting. They said, look, this is not about is it wise or prudent for uh, the, the, the legislature to ban firearms ownership by people subject to restraining orders. We're not the legislature. This is not about us deciding what's good policy. This is about what the Constitution says, and the Constitution has certain requirements as the Supreme Court laid out in Bruin, and the question is, does this meet the constitutional requirement? And they ruled that it does mm -hmm. not. Good. There, and, I mean, you know, obviously you have to read the case, and there's a lot, there's a lot going on in the case. But the, the, the basic upshot of why they ruled that this particular pro prohibition under federal law doesn't uh, satisfy the requirements of the Constitution is that um, the traditional justification, the, the traditional history of how people were or, and when people were deprived of the right to keep and bear arms, 
uh, historically was when they were, because the government was saying there's a general dangerousness concept, right? Dangerous people could be divested of the right to keep their arms. And what the court, what the Fifth Circuit said is, no, that's not how it worked. The tradition is not sort of this general amorphous dangerousness concept. It was people who were dangerous to public, to the public, to the public uh, security. So people who were, you know, uh, 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 were dangerous to the revolution, people who were dangerous to the government, people who were dangerous to public order, not individual dangerousness, but sort of this broad societal dangerousness. And then at the time, the, you know, there were concerns of the uh, Tories and people who didn't support the revolution and and uh, 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 and things like that. So it's it's a I mean, we could spend hours and hours talking about Rahimi, but it's a very interesting case and it raises some very interesting issues, in particular how granular the analysis has to be, right? How specific does the historical tradition that, that the state has to show, how specifically uh, 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 analogous to the current law does it have to be? How narrow sure. and how close does it have to be? Because depending upon what level of specificity and what level, level of granularity you compare them, uh, the, the, the law can either survive or not survive. And I, I'll, I'll use a great analogy to our Siegel case. One of the things, one of the main things that the state tried to do, which was unsuccessful for the most part in Siegel, and which Judge Bum did not allow them to do, they tried to, to support these various restrictions with very, at a very, very general level of analogy. You know, they, for example, they tried to support the prohibitions on uh, ent entertainment facilities or recreational facilities by cherry picking, oh, well, in this one state, they prohibited carry in, uh, of firearms in ballrooms. So ballrooms are, you know, like uh, movie theaters or like, you know, parks or whatever, because it's where people kind of gather and congregate. That's an enormous level of generality. And so if you allow that, if you, if, you, if you can analogize at that high level of generality, well, you can ban guns everywhere because there's nothing tangible about that that's, that, that, that sure. really gets to what they, what they thought the right to keep their arms meant in 1791. And so the more general the, the analysis, the, 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 the less significant the right to keep their arms is, uh, and the more power the state has to infringe on the right or to limit the right. The more granular, the more specific they have to be, the much harder it is for the state to um, to prevail. So, so Rahimi is fairly important in that regard to the extent that, you know, if we get a ruling from the Supreme Court on the level of generality and the level of granularity that's re required to do these kinds of comparisons, these to historic, historical tradition, that kind of analysis and ruling could turn out to be very, very important going forward. And we'll see. I mean, we don't know exactly how the court's going to look at it. We don't know. We don't know who voted to grant cert. We don't know. Uh, you know, uh, it may simply have been because the federal government, you know, asked for it and it was a, an important statute. And maybe that's why they want to hear it. But maybe we have no idea what they're thinking. I mean, there's really no way to know what the court's thinking when they grant a cert petition. Gotcha. But those kinds of issues are going to be very interesting to see how the court looks at that stuff. You know, and it's the first so Dan, first, first I got, case. Cool. I got two more things. Well, I got a secret thing I'm going to close with, but give us an update on the assault weapons ban and the mag case right. for especially our new listeners. Just they got like two minutes to wrap it up, please. Re re real quick. So for both for your listeners who don't do know what I'm talking about, but for also for your listeners that are new to this. So NGRPC has 
two other lawsuits going on that are very important. One is the magazine, uh, the challenge to the magazine ban. Um, as, as your listeners know, New Jersey limits uh, the capacity of a, mag- of, of a magazine to 10 rounds. Um, we've been litigating that since 2018. That case uh, went up to the Supreme Court on a petition for cert. Our cert petition was on hold while the Bruin case was being decided. Once Bruin was decided, the Supreme Court sent it back down to the lower courts to be redecided under uh, in light of Bruin. Um, and so we're now back at the district court litigating that case. Um, along with it is the assault firearm case. So after Bruin, we brought another case challenging New Jersey's assault firearm ban. What ended up happening is the cases got consolidated along with a third case um, brought by Firearms Policy Coalition, also challenging the assault firearm ban. So there are three cases now being heard together. Um and we're in the middle of what's called discovery, where the parties exchange information in preparation for a disposition of the case. Um, we're in the process of exchanging, we've exchanged some expert reports for expert witnesses. Uh, we're going to kind of wrap that up in the next month or so. There's more reports to come, maybe depositions. We don't know what's going to happen. And then the case is teed up for what's called dispositive motions. That is motions that could end the case, depending upon yes. what the judge does, to be filed in September. Um, most likely to be heard, argued in October. Uh, now, how long the court will take to decide them, we don't know, but we are teed up for these motions to be filed in September, so this is, you know, we're barreling headlong towards that, so that's coming. Uh, we're in July already, so that's coming up real soon. So those cases are, you know, we're, 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 we're uh, moving those cases very rapidly, and, uh, you know, those cases should come to a head very soon. So, you know, that's that's also in the in the works, and that's, uh, that's happening. You know. Now, Dan... Uh, Two things before we're going to plug, uh, obviously, Hartman Winnicky in uh, Ridgewood. And uh, what do you guys do at Hartman Winnicky? Uh, give a rundown, please. So we are a, a small firm, a sort of general practice firm. We represent individuals, small businesses, large businesses, in all sorts of different things. One of our premier practices that we've been doing really since the beginning is our estate planning and estate administration practice. We do wills, trusts, we administer estates. Um, and so uh, we've been doing that for many, many years. Um, but we also uh, uh, handle real estate uh, leases, real estate transactions, uh, business transactions, corporate transactions, again, for individuals, small businesses, large businesses. Um, you know, we represent anything from individual uh, proprietorships to Fortune 50 companies um, at every level. So it's a nice general practice firm. We do a lot of different stuff. And, you know, of course, obviously, as your as your listeners know, um, I also, uh, I, I do, you know, in addition, we do commercial litigation, you know, business litigation, but of course we do this, uh, the Second Amendment firearms related stuff. We do a ton of it. Um, we have, a, my partner actually has a really interesting niche practice in internet law, which is. You there, Dan? Dan just dropped out. I think his, uh, it might've died. I wanted to talk about, don't, Dan, are you there? No, he's not. Okay, well, Dan abruptly left. Dan Dan just had rescued a dog called Quint, Q-U-I-N-T, and he's part boxer, and I wanted him to talk about it a little bit. But is it crazy how well uh, – it's a perfect time for him to drop out, by the way. He, he really wrapped up the show well. 
Dan, if you can hear us, we can't hear you at all. Your battery's on your Bluetooth device because he's away at the moment. Dan took time off from his vacation to be on the show with us two schmoes, Sandy. Can't thank him enough. Support those who support you. Support all the 2A families out there. That's going to be the next uh, StandStrong.biz is going to be all the 2A organizations that you need to support, including Knife Rights. Go to KnifeRights.org for the ultimate steel challenge. Yeah, Dan, I'm closing it up. Dan, okay. All right. No problem. Sandy, wrap it up. Dan, thanks again for bringing your brilliance to the show with a couple of idiots. Well, it looks like you've wasted yet another perfectly good hour listening to Gun for Hire Radio. Gun for Hire Radio is a kind of media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. On behalf of my show host, master trainer Anthony Calandro, and the rest of the crew here at Gun for Hire Radio, we do thank you so much for listening. Uh, from the beautiful Gulf Shores of Alabama and the shadows of the New York City skyline and somewhere in an undisclosed location from Dan... We love you guys. Thank you again so much for listening. Uh, God willing, Jesus tarries and the batteries hold out. We will see you again next week. And since I'm in Alabama, I'm going to go blow some shit up just because I can. Yeah.